0: and welcome to Yesterday in Travel. For all our new listeners, this is a podcast about travel history where we cover moments big and small that have defined travel as we know it. My name is Kalina and I'm joined as always by my co-host Brian. Hi Kalina. We often discuss how travel works as a connecting force between people and different countries. Today we're going to talk about a physical connection that happened in travel history, the 1869 completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in the United States, and specifically the moment that the East Coast connected with the West Coast at Promontory Point, Utah. But first, as we do every week, we'll discuss some of the latest stories from the world of travel. kick us off?
1: Yes. So the first thing that I thought to bring to the podcast was that we've finally reached a point. Remember when we used to talk about TSA throughput way back at the beginning of the podcast? Mm, We kind of stopped monitoring it because it wasn't really going anywhere. And yeah, (laughs) we kind of (laughs) hit some plateaus and it's been very plateau-y for the most part since around July of 2020. There's been a few spikes. There was a spike around Labor Day, a tiny spike. There was a bigger spike around New Year's and the holidays. The Christian holidays, the Judeo-Christian holidays. (laughs) And then there was a big trough again because things have been pretty bad in like the January, February. But ever since about a month ago, there's been a pretty aggressive upward curve on Hmm. TSA throughput numbers. And we actually finally reached a point where we got to about 50% of the total number of travelers from two years ago. Oh, So and it's interesting because it's almost it was almost exactly a year ago that everything shut down. It was like March 14th, 15th, 16th. -hmm. And it's exactly this week also that the line of like how many people are traveling through TSA is crossing above the line from a year ago that was tanking downward rapidly. And now this line Mm -hmm. is increasing up rapidly. So we're seeing almost like a symmetry over the past year in the two lines of like how many people are traveling on average.
0: Hmm. That's encouraging.
1: Yeah. Encouraging news. It looks like there are more people traveling. We're up to about 50 percent of two years ago. So sustained increase.
0: Wow. Hmm. I wonder if that's because of the vaccinations. If people are just, I have my vaccine, I'm going to visit grandma or I don't know.
1: Anecdotally, and from what you hear, I think on the news every now and then there's stories about the pent up demand, the elderly especially wanting to travel as soon as they get their vaccines. And at this point, I guess that number is Mm -hmm. pretty substantial. Now I know people that have either one or both vaccines, like my parents and my wife's parents, like all have at least one and some two doses. So they're good to go.
0: Yeah. People my age as well, uh, people in their mm-hmm. 20s and 30s are that I know are getting vaccinated. You know, most of them have health problems or signed up for some sort of surplus vaccine service. Mm-hmm. But that's also encouraging. I think I might have mentioned this on the show before, but I remember reading I think this was like six months ago, but the CEO of Expedia said, as soon as there's a vaccine, we're going to have our biggest day ever on our site, I predict. And... Maybe that's what we're seeing in in action right now. Yeah,
1: yeah. I think we're in the midst of that happening in different spheres. Actually, that leads into one of the other pieces of news, which I saw, which is just that Ticketmaster in the UK registered a 600% increase in ticket bookings for like summer music festivals in the UK after the government there unveiled this roadmap that is hoping to have things reopen around the 21st of June to have things generally reopen. Wow. Um, all right. Uh, what about you? Do you, you have uh, some news to share?
0: Got some news. Um, I just saw this this piece of news when I was uh, reading The New York Times before recording. This article says that there are, you know, despite despite thank you, despite all the bad travel news lately, there's two new American airlines Starting this year.
1: Two like airline companies?
0: Yes. All right. One is called Avilo and one is called Breeze Airways. Avilo says that this is the perfect time to start an airline because the major airlines have reduced their number of flights. So there's more room at airports. They've fired a lot of their uh, flight crews, the big airlines. So there's lots of people who are talented and need work. And airplanes are really cheap right now.
1: Nice. Cool. Yeah, actually, I saw I saw someone share on Twitter, this Cuba reporter, that an American Airlines flight between Miami and Havana, which is 90 miles, about 45 minute flight. Yeah. Yeah. At one time, that flight was priced at I think ninety nine dollars round trip. He posted a screenshot of the current price of that flight because they they've now instated one weekly flight back and forth. It was eighteen hundred dollars for a round trip for a forty five minute flight. So yeah, prices are high. Let's get some competition
0: in there. Right? Yeah. Oh boy, I just had this (laughs) flash of panic about booking my flight to go home this summer. (laughs) Well, we'll see. We'll see. Hopefully, things are more settled down by then. My other piece of news, which I'm not going to try to go into in too much detail, but it's just this article I found. It's this new study that says, that theorizes that faster than light travel is possible by, (laughs) you look very, very doubtful about this, but they have this idea that you can get around old problems by, by doing things with science and velocity that I don't understand, but it seems very exciting in our age of, uh, sort of a Mars space travel and stuff. It
1: seems very exciting and it seems like definitely something I don't and will not understand, but reminded me that, you know, uh, Albert Einstein's birthday was three days ago. Oh. And he was, he was a pioneer of the concept of, you know, speed of light. Einstein
0: is mentioned in this article, they say, you know, all this recent research about this kind of travels based on his theory. And they have like a slightly different theory, it sounds like. But again, I'm not going to go too much in the weeds about it because I don't don't understand it. But yeah, kind of cool. All right. So that's that's travel news. Let's go back in time now, without Einstein's help, back to Utah. And you can start us off by talking about what exactly happened on May 10th, 1869.
1: Yes. So this marks the official end point of this work that was done to complete the Transcontinental Railroad across the country. And on that day, so after, you know, seven ish years of, of work with Union Pacific Railroad Company on one side coming from the east, moving west, and Central Pacific going west from Sacramento, they met in Promontory Point and the workers gathered around 3,000 people, give or take, based on varying accounts. They gathered and they nailed in this final golden spike into the ground to commemorate the connection of the East. East, and the West lines, which officially linked, officially completed this transcontinental railway. The final spike was hammered in by this guy named Leland Stanford, who ultimately would be the founder of Stanford University. He was governor of California for a bit. He was a senator, a U.S. senator. He was a very wealthy guy. So he officially drove in the last stake. But leading up to that point, it had mostly been on the Union Pacific side. It had been mostly Irishmen and Civil War vets. And mm-hmm. on the Central Pacific side coming from California, mostly Chinese immigrants mm. who had been doing the laying of the rail. So it was it was a big deal. It was kind of one of the first live media events because it was something that through the telegraph people experienced in in real time.
0: Can I add something but, about the telegraph here? Yeah, yeah. I was going to say at the end, but it, this seems like a better place is that they had originally planned that Every hit of the hammer into the spike would be telegraphed around the country, but it didn't work. I, I I think they like missed the spike or something or the hammer didn't hit it quite right. So they didn't do that. It was a really cool idea. Yeah,
1: but... it sounded like Mr. Leland Stanford, as talented and wonderful as I'm sure mm-hmm. he was. I think he missed the spike and hit the, like the wooden part of the rail. And then <laughs> and then they had this second guy who was also like a mm-hmm. rich industrialist capitalist guy and he also missed so uh, then they finally brought up like a real worker who like had actually worked on the railroad and he just like nailed it in hammered <laughs> it in for them and probably like gave a pretty hard eye roll and like walked off right yeah but, yeah That's but funny. even though they didn't i think get those the hammers to actually sound on the telegraph they did telegraph tweet out <laughs> done Over the telegraph so that everyone around Uh the country who was tuning in on their telegraph smartphones could see that it was it had been completed in that moment. Although it was not actually finished because they actually had there was a bridge that they hadn't completed in California and another one on the other side over the Missouri River that they wouldn't even complete for another few years and apparently all along the way they had been working so fast to get it done that a lot of the bridges were done really shoddily and they had to like fix them (laughs) within a few years oh and the other thing i was going to mention is this momentous scene was fictionalized in the 1999 documentary wild wild west with will smith (laughs) Uh No, apparently uh, in that movie, which I didn't watch, apparently there's a there's a scene where they're actually going to have the last spike nailed in the uh, the president, Ulysses Grant, is going to be there Mm -hmm. and nail it in, even though in real life he wasn't the actual person who nailed in the final spike. And the villain is going to try to assassinate the president and Will Smith is going to save the day. So sorry if I spoiled it for people, but um,
0: (laughs) Well, you didn't tell them if they, if they succeed in killing the president or You'll not. You'll
1: never know. You'll never know. Have <laughs> to watch. <laughs> never know. So wow. anyway, the connection was a big deal. Finishing it up kind of foreshadowed a new era of rail travel across the country and expansion across the country, but. This was something that I've mm-hmm. been a long time in the making, and I think you were going to talk a little bit about going back, looking at how this whole idea started. So let's let's take it back a, a few decades. Do you want to turn get into the dial that?
0: of our time machine to go back? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, the idea to do this to connect the coasts started around 1832. Um, it was in 1830 that the first locomotive train was going on the east coast, and during that time there were thousands and thousands of miles of tracks laid on the East Coast, but there was no easy way to get to the West Coast. Meanwhile, there were a lot of people trying to get there from the East Coast, frontiersmen and settlers and, you know, anyone who wanted to start a new life out in the West, but it was very, very hard. And also there was the gold rush, so people wanted to go and and get rich. But if you wanted to go West from the East Coast, it would cost you quite a bit of money, around $1,000. The trip took five or six months and you had to cross pretty rugged terrain, mountains and deserts and things like that. People could choose to take a ship around the southern tip of South America, but that took quite a bit of time. So that's a trip of like 18,000 miles. Or you could cross through Panama and go up to California, but there was some risk of disease with that route. So
1: And the Panama Canal hadn't been built. So you're crossing Panama, but across like a spit of land. Yeah,
0: not an easy crossing. So. Basically, if you wanted to go to the West Coast, you could, but it was expensive, it was dangerous, and it would take a lot of time. And people did, you know, die in these crossings as well. So yeah, taking your life into your hands a bit um, with that decision. We've
1: all played Oregon Trail. We all know.
0: (laughs) I've never played Oregon Trail, actually.
1: Oh, wow. (laughs) Actually, yeah, maybe, I don't know what generation that was. Oregon Trail was, it it was a good game. It was very educational. You've got to like, you're in this like covered wagon and you're going across the country and like... There's rattlesnakes, there's rivers, like there's basically you learn that there's like lots of ways to die.
0: Yeah, it's true. Um, I did read Little House on the Prairie, which kind of gave an idea of Mm -hmm. what that life was like. There you go. So anyway, this idea started, people are starting to think about how this might be possible. And in 1853, Congress finally appropriates funds to start exploring how they could do this. But this is pretty bad timing because the Civil War is very much on the horizon and no one can agree about anything. In people in the South want the train to start in the South. People in the North want it to start in the North. And the country is very much moving towards war at a brisk pace. So it's not a great time to agree upon where to start a train from when you can't um, have a civil conversation with your fellow Congressperson. I guess a Congressman at that time. True, but
1: sadly, yeah, sadly. By
0: 1862, I'm not sure if you're going to get into this a little bit, but no,
1: yeah. Finally, they do pass it in 1862, a year after the war starts, and leading up to the war. There's all this Mm -hmm. disagreement about where they're going to set the path because Mm -hmm. of this North South divide. They they're trying to pass the bill that they will ultimately pass to get funding for this project off the ground. But it fails repeatedly in the Senate and it keeps passing in Congress. It passes in 1960 in Congress and 1961. But because the Senate the way the Senate is made up, the power structures are, are different. So there were enough southern states to block the financing of it because the route, the best route they decided was the middle route, which didn't have it going through the south. But so the southern states kept opposing it. And it was only until the southern states seceded from the north that the Senate suddenly didn't have these southern states in it anymore. There were no senators from the southern states because they had all seceded so finally in 1862 the senate can actually also pass this bill because all the southern Mm. states just aren't in the senate so that's how they end up getting it passed
0: (laughs) it's funny how that works
1: yeah yeah,
0: yeah, get things done.
1: And the railroad was all entangled with politics at this point. I think yeah, you wanted to right. talk about this. I mean, the
0: problem at the time, I think, is that the railroad was this new and lucrative thing, and the Congress was in charge of creating laws around it and enacting them. So it makes sense that a lot of people got mixed up in weird deals. Unfortunately, the example I wanted to talk about came a little bit later, this guy who ran for president in 1884, he actually ran for president before that as well. Anyway, he was the Speaker of the House. His name was James G. Blaine. And when he was running for president in 84, it came out that he had made a law that was beneficial for a railroad company that he had a stake in. And that was a huge scandal. And what they would chant at him at rallies and stuff, they'd say, James G. Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Clever stuff. But uh, that basically derailed his entire campaign. And Mm. he was seen as a cheat and a scammer. and, And yeah, I think that's a really fun, fun little story. But that was the end of his political career. He lost the White House. And I think just kind of goes to show that these railroads were causing problems for a lot of people in power because the railroad and politics are as intertwined at the time.
1: In a way, it's like any new industry or technology that's like being regulated as it's also growing and evolving and being this like money making economic driving machine And they did in some ways try to create a system so that the railroad would get built Mm -hmm. efficiently. Like they made it a competition, which I thought was interesting. So they allowed Union Pacific and Central Pacific both the rights to start building from each different end and headed towards each other. And the deal was for every mile of track they laid, they gave them a certain amount of acres of land. This rail company Mm. would then have that land to build more railroad on later on, which is a pretty good system. You know, it incentivizes them to build as much as they can, as fast as they can, because they're competing against the other one. And the the faster they get, the middle point wasn't determined at the start. They were both like headed towards each other as fast as possible and they wanted mm-hmm. to do as complete as much of it as they could so they could gain as much acreage as they could to build across the rest of the united states but even so was all sorts of mm-hmm. corruption going on among the people that were running these two companies. There was a, a company created that was artificially inflating prices for Union Pacific. The owner mm. of Union Pacific created this company that was inflating prices for the construction so that he could then go to the U.S. government and say, Look, it's costing us this much money to do this. But then he was like siphoning off that money from the government because the government was like partially funding things. So, and that was like part of these scandals that started blowing up. But even despite some of the attempts to like make this thing work. It was like Uh a huge corrupt mess. One of the other things that I also found interesting was just sort of the nature of the work. So they had mostly Irish and, and Civil War vets on the Union Pacific side. They were paid $30 per month and they were given housing and food And on the Central Pacific side, coming from California, the Chinese workers also got lodging, but they chose to cook for themselves. Most of them were recent immigrants from China and they didn't prefer American food. So they were just like, you know what? I'm going to forego the oatmeal and whatever else you were making for us. I'm going to do my own thing.
0: Uh, I found a couple of interesting things about the Chinese workers too. You know, mostly the Their work was super dangerous. They were basically blowing up mountains and tunnels into mountains to try to build these railroad tracks. And this one anecdote I read was that Chinese workers were lowered in hand-woven reed baskets to blast a hole in the rock. They would place an explosive on either side of like this tunnel, and then hopefully were pulled up before the tunnel detonated. So, you know, sadly this didn't always work and people yeah. did die. There was also, I found, an 1867 English to Chinese translation book, which included the following phrases. This the first one is he wants eight dollars a month, he ought to be satisfied with six dollars. This next one is just basic light the fire, sweep the rooms, and the last one is. I want to cut his wages. So that's what people wanted to learn to say in Chinese uh, during this railroad era. So not, not a great time to be an immigrant working wow, on the railroad tracks. Huh. Yeah, yeah, bad. It was it was tough. It was, the you know, it was it was freezing cold. There's avalanches, these explosions, it was really, really tough work. Yeah,
1: yeah. Unfortunately, it was also a period of time where the United States was traipsing across oftentimes land that had been promised or contractually given to native tribes uh, or, or ran close to those lands. And the native tribes often felt like their land was you know, that this was like an encroachment on areas that they were sort of responsible for. And when they saw these rail lines coming through and these like shanty towns popping up with the workers, they would attack them. This added just another level of danger from the worker side. These people who, you know, poor Irish and Chinese immigrants coming to the States, were also being attacked by the Native tribes who felt like this land was theirs. So it was a rough existence all around.
0: Bad all around. I found this quote from um, General William T. Sherman, who, of course, he's like a Civil War hero. And he said in 1867, speaking about the railroads and Native Americans, he said, the more we can kill this year, Native Americans, the less will have to be killed the next year. So pretty cold hearted viewpoint about what was needed to be done to build this railroad in certain corners of the country at that time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So it all, it all wraps up. Um, and, uh, and then what happens?
0: I mean, basically what happens immediately after it's wrapped up is that there's huge celebrations all over the country. People are like firing guns into the air and there's parades and celebrations. And I found one anecdote that, that said, in in Philadelphia, someone noted that they hadn't seen a celebration like this since the surrender of Lee's armies, the end of the Civil War, hmm. and this provoked the same kind of like excitement, like "Oh my God, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. railroads done!" Like people were people were psyched.
1: Yeah, one of the larger takeaways, or sort of the 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 completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, is just the another uh, moment in American national psyche and mythology of like we are great and like America is great. Like this moment where we're there's this unbridled optimism and this confidence. It was like a national expression of confidence. We set out to do this thing, this great feat, and we completed. Yeah,
0: it. yeah, I think that's true. Um, and
1: it was around two thousand miles of two thousand
0: miles, quite a lot of miles. Um, lay down over I think six years. I guess you're going to talk about the impact more, but the one stat I wanted to throw out there was that we talked about how hard this trip was before. And suddenly something that could take five months would only take five days and cost one hundred and fifty dollars as opposed to a thousand. So suddenly the West is much more accessible.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the huge impacts that the completion of of this section has, because it, it leads to further railroads. But at this point, it basically means anyone can get back and forth for a lot less money anyone could move across the country. It changed where Americans live. Suddenly you could up and move somewhere and settle in a new place. It also meant that commerce could happen across larger distances. You could now affordably ship packages back and forth across the U.S. And this is when like the start of the days of catalogs and being able to like order something in a catalog, salesmen going around selling these catalogs, and then you being able to flip through. is like the early version of Amazon, basically.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Theodore Roosevelt was involved in this sort of, at the time, the shipping part of it, he had some venture into cattle in the West or where the West was at the time, which is really the Midwest now. And he he teamed up with someone who could ship cattle from this Midwestern state back to New York. And it was amazing because they could have this refrigerated cars could bring back beef from the Midwest, this like wild ranged cows. And that was like a huge deal at the time. So he invested some money into that endeavor.
1: Yeah, this was also like a big moment for government financed capitalism. Because this was a huge economic, uh, this like spurred all this economic growth and all this economic activity, and this was something that. The rail companies couldn't fund this on their own. They needed the U.S. government to come in and say, "Okay, we're going to create this plan. We're going to pre-fund it. And it was successful, even despite the corruption and despite the overpayment and overcharging. So it was this example, this one of the early examples of the U.S. government financing capitalistic endeavors. And they, you know, then go on to do that in Lots of other areas later, including the Mm -hmm. airline industry. When we were talking early on, um, the way that government was involved in like the creation and deployment, sort of, of the airline industry that then became this like private sector endeavor. But ultimately, also we touched on earlier, this was a moment that was had a huge impact, a negative impact on the native peoples of you know North America. It was sort of the beginning of the end of of this rapid Encroachment and expansion into the west, and these territories that were sparsely populated became more and more populated. The rail lines bringing commerce through basically ensured that the European mm-hmm. colonial invaders were going yeah. to spread right. and spread rapidly into the frontier east to west. So um, yeah. it was a sad day, yeah. Ugh. In that sense,
0: <laughs> is that how we're going to end the episode? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> well let's let's end let's it's good to dwell yeah, on that actually true. but we let's end on so Jules Verne around the world in 80 days was written soon after this happened maybe a decade or two or so and the book was partially inspired by the completion of railroad because all around this time when the railroad was completed the Suez Canal was also being completed. And this long railway that the British were building through India was completed. And those three things were the final pieces in the puzzle to being able to actually travel around the world efficiently without it taking months and months and months. And the U.S. portion was a huge, a huge part of it. But anyway, the book is about this British guy who bets money and then takes this crazy trip where Mm -hmm. he goes around the world and he takes the transcontinental railway across the U.S. He goes through the Suez Canal. He goes through India on the newly built railway there. So,
0: Mm. yeah, I think that's huge. Like it's, you know, we talked we talked before about how travel has made the world so much smaller. And this was a huge step in that direction of making different places accessible in different countries. No longer would it be a months long thing, as you said, but days, weeks. And now, you know, you can go somewhere in a few hours. So that's our show, but we actually have something different in this episode. We're going to talk to my brother, Sean Fraga, who has studied this stuff for a really long time. He has a PhD from Princeton, all about things like this. So we're gonna have him on the show and ask him some questions about the Transcontinental Railroad and why it was important. So definitely stick around for that. All right, so now we're moving into the discussion portion of the episode. Um, I'd like to introduce my brother, Sean Fraga. Sean is a historian of the North American West and a Mellon postdoctoral fellow with the Humanities in a Digital World program at the University of Southern California. He's currently working on his first book about the Transcontinental Railroads, Asian Trade, and the Puget Sound, which will be published by Yale University Press. So welcome to Yesterday in Travel.
1: Thank you so much. It's a thrill to be here.
0: You're our first guest, so we're very excited about this.
1: Wonderful. Yeah. And, Kalina's been talking up all of your railroad knowledge. so That's true. Yeah. Very exciting moment. I'm excited to come and share
0: it. I mentioned the other day at dinner that we were talking <laughs> and I had a bunch of questions about what I thought were kind of obscure railroad facts. And you seem to seem to know the answer to all of them. So <laughs> I hope so. Cool. I'll start with a big picture question, which is why? Why is the connection of this railroad important in American history?
2: Yeah, it's great to start with a big picture question. Uh, The golden spike moment is important for three reasons. First, this is a, a big media moment that really speaks to how far the country has come since the end of the Civil War. And a lot of commentators at the time, uh, and historians today, see the First Transcontinental Railroad, uh, you know, as as literally connecting the East and West, but also really symbolically connecting the North and the South. Mm. So writers at the time talked about how the railroad was binding up the nation's wounds and sort of bringing the country back together. Second, this moment is also uh, a really tangible demonstration of the United States reaching out to the wider world and not just to Europe where there's been, you know, extensive trade across the Atlantic since the revolution, since before, but also to Asia. The United States has also been trading with China since the revolution, you know, think back to the Boston Tea Party, but many at the time saw the railroad as sort of hypercharging that trade with China and with Asia by creating a new global route for trade, sort of creating a shorter route between Europe and Asia. The irony of that vision of the railroads is that the Suez Canal opens the same year as the first transcontinental railroad. And so that vision uh, isn't fully realized uh, in the same way that the, the sort of post-Civil War unification vision is. And finally, and this is this is super big picture, the golden spike also acts as a hinge between two different ages, two different ways of living. You know, the country really swings from being an agrarian, slow, a locally focused place where horses or sailboats are the fastest ways of moving, where people and goods uh, tend to stay put for the most part. And after the Golden Spike, that really all explodes. Uh, It's replaced by a way of living that's much faster. It's industrialized. People begin moving to cities, an explosion of factory jobs, much of it powered by steam, much of this, this sort of new interconnection conjured by the telegraph. And suddenly people and goods and ideas are moving faster mm. than the speed of nature. And so the railroad and that golden spike moment really condenses it. The completion of that line is really seen as, as, a, as a triumph over nature. And in a lot of ways, we're still living in the shadow of all three of those, those different reasons today.
0: Hmm. That's so interesting. We, we talked about when they were deciding about where to start the railroad, that it was this point of contention between the North and South and then the war happened and then the South didn't really get a say in it because the North just went ahead and did it without their input. And then Brian talked about during the episode about that idea of, of worldwide travel too. We discussed Jules Verne and going around the world in 80 days and how this new idea came out to like, yeah, that's possible. You can suddenly do that with, uh, with, with railroads like this and, and the Suez Canal. Um, another big picture question, and you've sort of touched on this already, but how did the railroad specifically change the United States? You talked about it made cities grow, made things move a bit faster within the country. How about for travel or immigration or politics? Did the railroad have any impact on, on those things?
2: Oh, absolutely. Huge impacts on travel, immigration, and politics. Uh, in terms of travel, the, the railroads really kick off mass national tourism. They opened the West and the Pacific Coast to leisure travelers, uh, to people who had money and had means but may not have been interested in some of the material deprivation involved in traveling West before the railroads. And the railroads are are very aware of this. They're intertwined with the development of Western tourism. And uh, although they predate the National Park Service, they really help to shape the national parks. So Northern Pacific, for example, uh, one of the early transcontinental railroads becomes a big booster of the first national park, Yellowstone. They have special trains that stop there. They they publish books about it. And it's a similar story with Great Northern Railroad and Glacier National Park uh, in 1893. The railroad promotes visitation. It, It builds hotels. There are still these enormous, beautiful railroad hotels sprinkled through national parks across the West. The Atchison Topeka in Santa Fe is involved in developing uh, the Grand Canyon. And so the the railroad saw tourism as a source of income and and in order to really fully realize it needed to have places that people wanted to visit along the route. So to encourage tourism, they were heavily involved in developing and promoting what became many of, of these iconic national parks. In terms of immigration, there's there's sort of two different stories, depending on on which end of the rail line you look at. Central Pacific, which built the western half of that first transcontinental line, about 90% of Central Pacific's workforce was Chinese. Uh, and in terms of raw numbers, that meant between 8,000 and 15,000 Chinese people, all of them men, as far as we know, were building the Central Pacific at any given time. And uh, about 20,000 Chinese people worked on the railroad overall. And it's the same story with the next two transcontinentals built. The Western workforces are majority Chinese. And after these railroads are finished, many of these Chinese workers find employment elsewhere along the line. They take the skills that they've learned in building the railroad. They spread out across the country. They go into Tennessee, Alabama, New York, into the late 19th century and and helped to build other railroads elsewhere in the United States. And so that first rail line really catalyzes Chinese immigration in the, the, the middle of the 19th century. At the other end of the line, um, in relation to, to Europe, the railroads really open European immigration uh, by making it easier for immigrants from Western and Northern Europe to travel directly from their homelands, from Finland or from Germany or from Ireland, to open land in the American West. Uh, The railroads are funded by the government through land grants. The way that the U.S. government gets these railroads to, to build these extensive networks is by granting them land instead of money with the understanding that this land will become valuable once there is a railroad running through it. And so the railroads as companies all set up land departments where they sell this land that they've been granted back to prospective immigrants who then, uh, as farmers or as merchants, become customers of the railroads. And if land departments are, are sort of what they're doing within the United States, they also all set up these bureaus of immigration, which go out across Europe, often centralized in London, and then with branches sort of elsewhere in Britain, in Germany, in Holland, across Scandinavia. And agents would promote settlement in the United States through newspaper advertisements, through brochures, through posters, working in the local languages. And they have a vested interest in promoting the West as a place where the land is healthy, where it's easy to grow crops, where it's easy to make money, and where life as a farmer will be pleasant and and rewarding in a way that it maybe isn't in Europe at the
1: time. Um, Quickly on, on immigration, um, You're saying that the railroads are what allow there to be sort of enclaves of Scandinavians in Minnesota and Germans in rural Pennsylvania and those sorts of things, like these larger national migrations of of groups of people that are kind of attracted by agents going out and and bringing people from certain regions of europe all to a similar region in the states absolutely you
2: can think of the railroads as building pipelines between certain communities in europe and certain places in the united states and because of that you get the development of these sort of ethnic enclaves of people from a particular country or particular region within that country who have all read the same advertisements they've all purchased immigrant tickets from the same railroad, and they're all sped through to to Minnesota or the Dakotas uh, or Washington State or Oregon and end up settling near people who are familiar to them, who speak their language, who have a similar way of building a building or planting crops. And so the the railroad sort of served to transplant many European communities into the the upper Midwest.
0: Mm. I have another question about immigration, too, actually. And if you don't know, we can move on. But wasn't the Chinese Exclusion Act in the 1880s and was that an, an like did the railroad impact because suddenly there were all these Chinese workers around and was the, that act sort of like a xenophobic response by American policymakers or do you know much about that?
2: Um, I do. Let me see. Let me think about where I would want to start with that. So by the early 1880s, Chinese people have been migrating to the western United States, first to to work the gold fields in California during the gold rush in the late 1840s, and then to work on the railroads across the 1860s into the early 1870s. And their use by these corporations, their employment as laborers, was seen by many white workers at the time as undercutting some of the privileges of being a white working man. The railroads paid the Chinese workers much less than they paid White laborers and many white people in the West at the time felt particularly economically threatened by this. And that builds over time. Uh, There are a number of, of sort of increasingly violent encounters between white people and Chinese people across the West. And it culminates, as you said, in the 1883 Chinese Exclusion Act, which attempts to limit immigration from China to skilled laborers, merchants. Students, people who who are, are are sort of more than common working men, mm. and this is this sort of backlash to Chinese immigration is bound up in the the story of the railroads. I think the the interesting thing about it is that there's a difference between how the railroads see the Chinese Exclusion Act and how ordinary workers do. Uh, the railroads, who are in the business after all of of moving people and moving freight. Are, are sort of dismayed by the, the Chinese Exclusion Act. They see it uh, quite correctly as something that will uh, negatively impact their trans-Pacific passenger business. Um, so in the same way that, that the railroads build these pipelines carrying immigrants from Europe into the United States, they could have as easily built similar pipelines bringing Chinese people into the United States. Uh, and the Chinese Exclusion Act helps to prevent that. Um, mm. And so there's wow. there's a lot of support for Chinese exclusion among white working people in the West. Um, And that's something that persists into the middle of the 20th century. So it's as much as the railroads bring in Chinese workers, they also help to spur this sort of white working class backlash against Chinese immigration that ends up really sharply limiting Chinese immigration to the United States and, and really shaping how the United States interacts with East Asia across the rest of the the 19th and early 20th centuries
1: cool um so what i'm curious about was this one rail line gets completed and then things change quickly after that but i wonder like how fast did things change and in the sense like like how many trains were running along the train line and and you mentioned that there were other transcontinental lines that were completed in years later and But I guess my question is, like, when did it go from being just one little line to a network and something that people were actually taking in larger numbers? Like, when did it go from, oh... I was one of the few people that took that exact train line from Iowa to Sacramento to I'm going to pay a cheap freight to get out to California and it's going to stop at all these different places. How long did that evolution take?
2: That's a fantastic question. It happens really fast. So Within a year of of the, the golden spike moment, the Central Pacific and Union Pacific are running three daily trains in each direction, one for passengers, one for freight, and one for mail. Uh, plus an express train that they call the the hotel train that made limited stops. So in that that early period, just a year after the Golden Spike, you have about six or seven trains running in each direction at any given time. And at that point, it still takes a number of days to cross the country. From San Francisco, it took about four days to reach Omaha, about five days to Chicago, or about six days to New York. By 1876, so this is less than 10 years after the Golden Spike, an express train makes the run from New York City to San Francisco in 83 hours and 39 minutes, which is about three and a half days. (laughs) And travel time is kind of stabilized there around um, around four days to cross the country. And these railroads you know they they keep building the network keeps developing into the 1890s so the first line is the only transcontinental line for let me do the math here until 1881 so just about 12 ish years until the second transcontinental line the southern pacific opens in 1881 but that first line really catalyzes travel like i said earlier it opens the pacific coast to a new type of traveler to a leisure traveler and the completion of that first line also spurs the construction of branch lines of other railroads that reach out from that first uh, line across the continent around cities around other settlements sort of expanding the catchment area of these railroads Uh, so the first line is important for that that big transcontinental connection but just as important is what comes after and how it it catalyzes uh the construction of other smaller lines and how quickly it it makes it possible for um for leisure travelers to move across the country
0: i know by 1890 like the superintendent of the U.S. Census says, we we might have mentioned this in the episode, but he says the frontier is like over; it's gone because so many people have come out by that point, and. I assume the railroads played a huge role in in that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The railroads play a huge role in the perception that the the frontier has closed. There's a a government official at the time who talks about how the railroads have pierced the desert Mm. and helped make it possible for for immigrants to really reach the the heart of the North American continent.
1: Hmm. So one other thing I was curious about was how dangerous it was because reading about the workers, it sounded like, The work was hard. The camps that they were living in, these semi-permanent little areas that they set up, and and they were attacked by native groups for this encroachment across, across the west. So, like, once things get going, I was just curious, like, what Americans' perceptions of how how dangerous it was, and then what the perception of the danger was, which I assume must have affected how people felt about traveling across the country how adventurous was it to do once the railroads were were built
2: well it's not outright dangerous exactly but it is risky uh and more than being risky it's often pretty uncomfortable especially at the very beginning of things there are a lot of travelogues of, of sort of diaries or letters or things people wrote into newspapers from the 1870s about how unpleasant railroad travel was at first Remember that the this first transcontinental line was built quickly, it was built cheaply by railroads with a, a vested interest not in passenger comfort but in finishing a project. Um and so one of the first thing the the railroads do after that Golden Spike moment is go back along the line and start upgrading it, making it more reliable and and more comfortable to travel over. In terms of the passenger experience, there aren't a lot of amenities at first. Um, travelers routinely complained about uh, how, how cramped the trains were, about uh, sort of how uncomfortable they were, that, that they were either too hot or they were either too cold as they're crossing deserts and they're crossing mountains, and how the food at the station stops was just awful. One of my favorite quotes about this is a passenger who writes about the, the offerings and describes them as, quote, fried fish, fried mutton, fried eggs fried mush, fried potatoes, and fried pudding, all swimming in grease, bad coffee without milk, dough cakes without butter, and muddy water <laughs> out of dirty glasses. And it's, it's such a, a sort of visceral description of how unpleasant some aspects of, of that would have been. At the same time, uh, in terms of risk, remember that these trains are are crossing mountains. They're crossing mountains that a generation before, Americans had regarded as almost impossible, as as what some people believed would ultimately form the Western boundary of the United States because they were so difficult to get across. And in the early days, even though there are rail lines across those mountains, trains have a great deal of difficulty making it across. So mountain snowstorms routinely delayed trains or trapped trains. Uh, One train in the 1870s gets trapped in Wyoming for 3 weeks. And so I I talked about this this massive project that the railroads took on to upgrade their infrastructure. A lot of that involves building snow sheds in areas that are prone to avalanches, building better bridges or viaducts over hollows, regrading the road so it won't wash out from floods, putting down stronger ties so that the rails won't won't shift. And then to your That's uh, funny no, sorry, go ahead. Well, you asked also about um, bandits. And of course, once you have trains, you also have train robberies. And one of the earliest train robbery takes place in in 1873. This is four years after that golden spike moment. You may know the name Jesse James. Jesse and Frank James were brothers. They were former bank robbers. Uh, They had been bank robbers before the Civil War, but they shifted their target to trains. And they would uh, pull up a tie or break a rail in such a way that required a, a train to stop. They would board the train and take money and valuable from passengers. Huh. They would also break open the, the safe, uh, often express companies. You think of, of Wells Fargo or these other sort of mail and valuables companies would have safes aboard the train for for cash or valuables. They'd break in, up, open the safes and take what was inside. And their, their reign, the, the Jameses, Lasts about a decade until uh, uh, someone on the federal payroll ends up shooting one of the Jameses in the back. But the robberies and train robberies continue much longer, and of course, that becomes sort of an enduring image in in westerns of the train stopped on the tracks by bandits uh, who come aboard and
1: and and take everything from from the passengers. When you were mentioning snowstorms and, and trains having trouble getting through the mountains, I was reminded of this. Mark Twain's story I can't remember what it's called but it's a it's about these there's like all these congressmen U.S. congressmen on a train and it gets snowed in and they're stuck in the snow for days and eventually they start cannibalizing each other but they do it with like they, they use the procedural rules of in Congress to do it. And it's this like whole thing making fun of Congress people. And or, you know, he, I mean, he was not fond, I think, of politicians. And it was this whole metaphor about how horrible they are that like, even in these sorts of situations, they're deciding who's they're going to eat based on these like policies of the Senate. Anyway, um, one other question. So you talked about a little bit like the different levels of, of comfort. It seems like everyone's kind of same same class at first but how long does it take for there to become like more of a a hierarchy in train travel where you can purchase a better ticket and have better amenities is that is that something that already exists Uh, like more locally in train travel in the east but doesn't get to the long distance stuff or, or how how does that work
2: yeah that's a really great question um so there are different classes of service and that differentiation of service happens pretty quickly so that by 1870 again this is a year after the golden spike central pacific is advertising that you can pay extra for a bunk you can pay extra for a private stateroom um, on one of their passenger trains that are that are running across the continent. At first, these are advertised as palace cars, but pretty soon the railroads contract out the business of operating their sleeping cars to a separate company, the Pullman Company. And Pullman is really the the name brand of rail travel for the golden age of travel in the, the late 19th century. If you could afford it, you went by Pullman Car. Uh, these were cars that were privately staffed. The sleeping car is connected to private dining cars. Mark Twain, on his travels by railroad across the West, travels in a Pullman car, and he writes about the incredible meals they were served, about eating antelope or mountain trout while drinking champagne, uh, running through the wilderness at the unbelievable speed of 30 miles an hour. So they they are definitely not mingling with the, the sort of the common people. Later on, I mentioned immigration from Europe earlier, the railroads start running special purpose emigrant trains, uh, and this was their way of opening transportation to the masses. So if the Pullman cars are, are a way of capturing one type of traveler, that wealthy, leisured traveler who really wanted to be able to, to sip champagne while watching the mountains glide by, emigrant trains were, were there to move people who didn't have a lot of money to their new homesteads. Um, so these were the, the cheapest, most basic fares. They were often little more than converted boxcars with benches installed. Immigrants typically had to bring their own food and their own bedding. But railroads did provide a generous freight allowance, thinking that if people were, you know, moving halfway around the world to set up a new household, they would want to bring uh, uh, a lot of goods, a lot of household goods with them. And so across the late 19th century, thousands of families from Western and Europe, Northern Europe cross the Atlantic Ocean, they land at Ellis Island, they cross to New Jersey, and they get on trains going west in these immigrant cars. And if we, if we sort of expand the scope out one level further in terms of these, these different ways of traveling, of course, once you have trains and freight trains, once you have boxcars, you also have tramps and hobos hopping boxcars to travel the west. And particularly as the railroads make it possible for sort of enormous industrialized single purpose industries to develop across the West, I'm thinking a lot of copper mining, for example, in, in Arizona, uh, places that rely sort of on a large labor force that has regular turnover, people start hopping hopping freights uh, in order to to crisscross the country. There aren't a lot of good numbers for, for how many people travel that way. But I can tell you that in the four years between 1901 and 1905, there were about 25,000 accidental deaths uh, of people hopping train cars and, and traveling this way, which gives you some sense of how popular an option that was for people who didn't have a lot of money to, to still harness the the benefits of rail travel, even if they, they weren't sitting in a Pullman car, even if they weren't dining on Antelope. <laughs>
0: Wow, that's crazy! In in the episode, we talked about how excited Americans were at the completion of the railroad. Specifically, we had one anecdote about how in Philadelphia, I think someone wrote that it was like it was like the day the Civil War ended and General Lee had surrendered. There's like big parades and guns going off and stuff. So, how did how did Americans view the railroad? Did they see it as an enduring triumph, or? Yeah, it's a really
2: good question. Uh, the way that Americans view the railroads changes pretty quickly. So you're right that at the beginning, especially around this Golden Spike moment, there was a lot of enthusiasm. Commentators write in, in really in rapturous terms about the railroad, about what the nation has accomplished. This is a really huge thing. It's a massive infrastructure project. It's taken years, it's taken thousands of workers. It's, it, it changes the size and the shape of the United States. But for many Americans, this enthusiasm really quickly shifts to resentment, especially in the West. The railroads controlled almost everything. Remember, they they hold these massive land grants, which they need to sell off to farmers and merchants who then become their customers. And so the railroads, when they're opening these immigration pipelines to Europe, when they're placing stations along their routes, they are really guiding the settlement of the American West to their own benefit. Um, so after they've established these towns they set freight rates to move you know consumer goods into these places to move whatever the product is from the farms or the mines out of these places and they keep a really tight hold over freight rates in a way that is designed to primarily benefit them uh, these massive national corporations rather than the local communities and so what happens in the the decade or so decade and a half following the golden spike In a lot of ways, the West becomes a commodity frontier that's controlled by Eastern interests. So if the railroad, uh, by providing this transportation across the West, opens it up to movement um, and people from the East, it also makes it easier for people from the East to to take things out of the West. So that copper boom in Arizona that I, I mentioned a moment ago is controlled by companies in San Francisco, in New York or Philadelphia, places outside of Arizona that are interested Really in extracting the wealth. And at the same time, where there are railroads, there is money, and and where there's money, there's corruption. And so there's there begins to be this sort of slow and steady drip of stories about uh, railroads bribing Congresspeople, the kickbacks from their subcontractors to the executives. But at the same time, the railroads are seen sort of like Wall Street banks today, the railroads are seen as too big to fail. And so over time, that, that public resentment builds. The railroads are seen as octopuses. They have tentacles everywhere spread into every little community. And they are increasingly strangling ordinary farmers and workers. I mean, by the 1870s, uh, Southern Pacific, before it builds its line across the continent, when it's centered in California, Southern Pacific controls something like 80% of rail traffic. In California, and American resentment over this, as the public sort of sours on railroads, that backlash to the power, the economic power that the railroads hold, really fuels the progressive movement in the late 19th and the early 20th century. Um, and a really tangible, visible manifestation of that is the 1887 Interstate Commerce Act. Um, so this this follows pretty quickly. On the completion um, of that first transcontinental line, uh, and the Interstate Commerce Act is a way of regulating freight rates, so that the, the the railroads are limited in some ways by government power, and the government is expected to sort of uh, to be the voice of the people and to protect them from the railroads. So within about a twenty year period, the railroads go from being a, a technological marvel to being seen as these these economic overlords with with too much power these octopuses that americans are are become very eager to rein in
1: yeah or yeah it's similar to sort of the way um net neutrality that's that sort of debate around who who's allowed to charge for what levels of internet access as the internet goes from this thing that's like whiz bang wow cool to like we all need it to survive and everyone views it as this thing that they have a right to, as opposed to just an added benefit to having a personal computer. You know? Exactly. And it's the
2: same dynamic with the railroads. Uh, as you said, they go very quickly from being a, a technological marvel, an incredible achievement, um, to being more like a utility, something that everyone depends on in their daily life. And because of that, the Americans very quickly pivot to the government as something to to regulate the railroads and and make them serve the public.
0: We sort of maybe touched on this when you talked about how railroads were seen maybe in films as being like blown up by bandits and things like that. But are there any misconceptions you can think of about the railroad, either in in popular culture or history that came out?
2: Yeah, I think the biggest misconception about the Transcontinental Railroad is that it is seen as an American project. I talked a little bit earlier about how railroads, um, not just the first one, but uh, all of the, the railroads building across the West relied really heavily on Chinese laborers to build these railroads. And more than that, these companies had global aims. We think of them as American companies and we're familiar, I think, uh, with all of the big impacts, uh, the ways that they reshaped American politics, Amer- the American economy, the American I- environment. At the same time, these are corporations that are, are looking out to the wider world. Uh, and many of them have this goal of using their rail network across North America to divert trade between Asia and Europe to carry that trade and, and to provide a, a faster route for it, for trade that would otherwise have to go around the tip of Africa or around the tip of South America. And so while the railroads, um, and especially this golden spike moment, this completion of the first transcontinental railroad, while these are are rightly seen as a domestic triumph, there's also this global element to them. Uh, the railroads are very much part of the steam-powered globalization of the 19th century. Uh, You mentioned Jules Verne around the world in 80 days. And the railroads make it possible for a private citizen, you know, who is not a head of state, just an ordinary civilian who happens to have some money to circumnavigate the globe, to go all the way around the earth, which is something that until the middle of the 19th century, until steam power and until these railroads uh, was something that was really restricted to military or scientific expeditions, to people who who invested a lot of time and energy and money. Um, and the railroads really open up that kind of globalization that we're still living with today. Ooh man. So interesting.
1: Is there any other anything else from this period? Any other anecdotes that are your favorites or just around this this time period and what was happening with railroads? Yeah, any other interesting stories?
2: One of my favorite things about early railroad history is that railroads spurred one of the first fast food companies in the United States, Harvey Houses. Uh, these were this was a company founded by a man named Fred Harvey. I talked earlier about some of the terrible food that railroad travelers encountered um, at station stops. And Fred Harvey, really smartly, saw this terrible food as a business opportunity. So he partnered with railroads. He built his Harvey houses at or next to railroad stations. Uh, They were all staffed by young women, uh, by these waitresses who often lived above the Harvey house. And their presence across the West was meant to communicate to travelers that the the West was safe. It was safe for women, uh, and so it was safe for everyone. The really incredible thing about how the Harvey houses worked, though, is that because uh, of the scheduling demands of the railroads, they had to fit in a meal service to meet railroad scheduling demands. So a train would sometimes send food orders ahead by a whistle signal. So if you were given a, a choice of what to order on the train, it would be ready when your train pulled into the station. And this was a way of uh, replacing sort of an earlier scam where you would stop at a station, get off the train, go in, sit down, order a meal. And then as you're waiting for your food, suddenly, uh, and you've already paid, suddenly you hear the whistle blow and you have to get back on the train. You've paid, you're leaving hungry. The Harvey Houses used this whistle ordering system uh, to really make the most of the time the train spent in the station. They also standardized recipes food and service so that customers could be served quickly before the train departed and so that customers learned that they they could depend on harvey houses for a consistent experience across the west in the late 19th century as the railroads are, are involved in the development of what would become many of of america's national parks fred harvey branches out into tourism he launches what he calls detours for detourists and later in the the early 20th century in the 1920s Fred Harvey provides the food service for America's first transcontinental passenger airline. So I think in a lot of ways, we can draw a direct line from the Harvey houses that, that sprang up railside to provide the standardized service to the kind of chain restaurants that you see in rest stops along highways today. The mechanics of it are different. They work a little different. But the basic idea of serving people standardized food quickly is something that really starts with the railroads.
0: Wow, that's so funny. I, I would love to hear what those whistle... Um, signals were for different orders.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that detail.
0: Awesome. Okay, well, can just end ended, I think, by saying, you know, thank you for coming on and talking to us and answering all of our questions in so much detail and depth. It's been really cool to, you know, hear from someone who really knows this subject and to get into the weeds a bit about, about the railroad. So thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's always a, a pleasure to travel into the past.
0: <laughs> we think so, yeah cool thanks for listening join us next time we're going to talk about the period of time when leon trotsky fled russia and went to mexico city and moved in with uh, diego rivera and frida Kahlo. so we're going to get into that in the meantime of course you can find us online on twitter at yesterday in trav you can email us at yesterday in at gmail.com and leave us a review on apple podcasts anywhere you listen to your podcast that's really helpful for us and that's it. I Tell your friends. Spread it around. I'll add happy St. Patrick's Day and give a shout out to our first episode of this season. We talked about when Frederick Douglass went to Ireland. It's a really cool story for Frederick Douglass and for the Irish, I think. So you can find that wherever you download your podcasts.